Hello, I'm May Announce, and welcome to a special two-part episode of Sound Strategic on the U.S. presidential election. Following the news that Joe Biden has been elected the 46th president of the United States, we wanted to take this opportunity to talk to regional experts from across the IISS for their thoughts on what this new administration will mean for American foreign policy over the next four years. In this episode, we look at how regional leaders in the Asia-Pacific and Middle East have reacted to the election news and the possible policy changes the Biden administration could bring to the two regions. Over the past four years, China has emerged as the United States' biggest systemic and strategic rival on the world stage. Ewan Graham, the IISS Shangri-La Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Security, sees several key points of continuity in the U.S. policy towards the region between the Biden and Trump administrations, despite their political differences. Welcome onto the show, Ewan. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. It's great to be here. So what has been the reaction of leaders in the Asia-Pacific to Biden's election victory? Well, so far, we've had a near-unanimous chorus amongst the democracies, at least, welcoming a a Biden victory, Uh, a stony silence from from Beijing, Pyongyang and uh, and Moscow. So read into that what you will. But um, I think uh, the Asia-Pacific has uh, endorsed the Biden victory by and large. So the Asia-Pacific has become a major focus of American foreign policy in recent years as part of American efforts to contain China's influence in the region. Do you think there will be a major change in U.S. foreign policy under a Biden presidency? And what are the issues uh, do you think that the new administration will prioritize? I think it's very difficult for the Biden administration to say outright that uh, there will be continuity from the Trump administration for obvious political reasons. But I think The reality is that at least in the policy, if not in the implementation, there will be uh, significant commonality uh, over what the administration has done over the last four years. And I emphasize administration because the president obviously was a wild card uh, within that. Uh, But I think the the bipartisanship that is regularly commented on in Washington is a significant factor. Uh, And in political terms, um, it makes no sense for for Biden to risk looking soft on China uh, domestically. Uh, So I think that that will also tend to uh, corral policy, I think, uh, in the new administration uh, more towards um, a a continuity theme rather than discontinuity uh, with some significant exemptions. uh, And that includes uh, a much greater tilt towards allies. Uh, that's one obvious difference uh, in the, uh, I think, the president-elect and his uh, emphasis on the importance of acting multilaterally, but with allies in particular, uh, and uh, and with Donald Trump. Um, so in that sense, it will be welcomed, I think, um, amongst the U.S. allies and its, and its close partners who have um, maintained, uh, I think, a, you know, a... a sometimes through gritted teeth, uh, commitment to the uh, alliance in the United States, regardless of the incumbent in the White House. Uh, but now I think there will be a, a um, you know, a, a, a genuine good feeling that, um, that the United States uh, is, uh, is, is willing to, um, uh, to commit to its, to its alliances, um, it, both in word and in deed. Um, However, I think there is um, also significant 
structural headwinds against uh, whoever um, the, the winner of the uh, recent election is. And Biden will also um, have to contend with the fact that the United States uh, is is facing an uphill struggle um, in, in, in all parts of the Indo-Pacific, but in Southeast Asia in particular. Uh, and that's not just because of the um, spotty record of, of the Trump administration in, in regional engagement. It's really uh, to do with the, the changing balance of power uh, with China front and center of that. It's not the only factor. We have North Korea, which may come uh, front and center in, in the near term. But China is obviously the, the long term strategic uh, challenge for the United States. Uh, and that's going to apply uh, regardless of uh, whether it's Democrat or Republican in the White House. So what will different countries in the region be looking for from a Biden administration? You already mentioned how allies will be looking for greater reinforcement and support of the alliance system and alliance structures. Um, what about countries in Southeast Asia? What will they look to uh, a Biden administration for? Well, Southeast Asia sits at the, the geographical center of the, the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and therefore, um, it, it does deserve extra attention. But it's uh, it, it's a slippery target into the bargain. Ten very different countries with very little in common other than their united uh, interest in, in not being um, dominated or, or turned into uh, proxies for a great power conflict. That was the, uh, the, the motivation throughout the... The last 50 years during the Cold War, we've seen a, a change of major power players, but the same logic applies. For Southeast Asia, I think it's very difficult for the United States to be a symmetrical competitor to China because it cannot compete with China's economic pull or its strategic proximity. Therefore, for the United States to restore its position... Uh, it must grasp the nettle that to do so means really to act in combination with other like-minded major powers within the sub-region and outside. Uh, the, uh, Australia, India and Japan are the obvious ones. And in the formulation of the Quad, I think that's what the Quad uh, really means. It's a, it's a, it's a, a tacit recognition that the United States is not the hegemon of old. Uh, it can only really uh, offer something to Southeast Asia uh, in, in combination. Uh, but if it does so, and does so smartly under Biden, it can still be, a, I think, a more formidable player than it was on, under Trump because of Trump's uh, unilateralist and uh, exceptionalist te tendencies. Uh, if uh, the United States is willing to um, uh, go down the line of least resistance, if you like, and engage with the the bilateral partnerships that uh, are most amenable within Southeast Asia, Vietnam is one obvious example, but there are others, uh, then I think it could um, do well to, to make up lost ground uh, and combine with the comparative advantage of the others. Um, India has an obvious uh, advantage in terms of, of scale. Uh, Australia brings competences and knowledge of the region, which uh, may be lacking in, in Washington, and Japan uh, has very significant economic uh, and security stake in Southeast Asia. But uh, that needs to be joined up, I think, in a, in a more concerted fashion. Uh, and we saw the Trump administration actually uh, belatedly recognizing that logic uh, as it with its embrace of the, 
of the quad. I, I don't think the quad is a you know is a um, a silver bullet solution either. Um, there's going to be no easy way to turn this around for the United States in in Southeast Asia, but but it needs to have more inducements uh, and less focus, I think, on uh, on um, on ideology uh, and on um, the stick of 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 uh, sanctions uh, and and rhetoric. It needs to also, basically, frankly, bring its its um its checkbook to the party and be prepared to economically re-engage with Southeast Asia. At the moment, the United States faces significant challenges at home, while Biden has also made it clear that he wants to return the U.S. to a path that is more respected by its international partners and allies. Is there a concern in the region that the U.S. for the next few years will be more consumed by its by their domestic agenda and their domestic issues uh, rather than their foreign policy? I think that's an ongoing and perfectly uh, well-substantiated uh, concern in the region because the United States will remain a divided uh, polity. The, the election result speaks for itself. It, it wasn't, in the end, uh, the narrowest of victories, but still um, it was a, a clearly split uh, re- result. Uh, and that will have uh, foreign policy uh, in- implications. Biden's uh, instincts are to uh, repair the United States at, at home. I think his approach to great power competition is the United States needs to get its own economic house in order first, uh, and that competition will will proceed from that uh, from that assumption. Um, the difficulty in that is that the region uh, and particularly America's uh, adversaries uh, will not uh, allow Washington that that uh, breathing space. And that in any vacuum, there will be uh, a temptation to to move uh, on China or or North Korea's part, um, perhaps not in a uh, an overly dramatic way, but nonetheless, I think the record of the last uh, several years shows that um, that China has been very expert at undermining the credibility of the United States below the threshold at which the United States is willing to commit force. Uh, and the Biden administration um, may well face its own test uh, rather quickly in that. Um, I think the, there is plenty of pull on the rope still within the region for a, a more energized uh, and committed United States. Uh, and I think uh, a substantial amount of, of goodwill. But that has to be tempered by uh, a modified power calculation that uh, the United States uh, it, uh, and Biden is inheriting a ravaged economy that will take some time to uh, to revive, uh, and um, I think the politics will will probably point the other way from uh, a narrow focus on uh, on defence uh, and uh, resources for defence. The hope is, I think, that the Biden administration, if it realizes that China is uh, as big a priority as it is, uh, there will be a kind of global. Uh, balancing adjustment from other theatres, particularly in the Middle East, but also Europe, where the United States, frankly, does not need to be the leading player, uh, but strategically the centre of global gravity is in this region. Uh, and I think that uh, there's no easy answer for that. It, it will require a great deal of political will uh, and uh, the investment of, of political energy and, and treasure uh, to make sure that the United States uh, main, maintains its competitiveness in the military 
economic and, and diplomatic full spectrum competition with China. We don't know the answer to that. I think uh, the region is uh, is waiting for the first appointments as a, a sign of the Biden administration's uh, interest in the region. And I don't think it should be recast in terms of a, a pivot to or any throwback to the Obama era, for which, frankly, there's there's zero nostalgia in the region. That's the big um, albatross around Biden's neck, is that he obviously uh, he represents continuity from the uh, Obama administration. Uh, the uh, challenge for him is to uh, present continuity from the Trump administration in a way that he can politically uh, get away with. But uh, we are in a different world from, from that which... Uh, existed in in 2016. And maybe a last question. If you were sitting in Beijing, what would be going through your mind right now? Well, if I was Xi Jinping, uh, I would obviously be aware of a historic opportunity on one hand, uh, and that we know that the recent conclave of the party, which basically agreed to the uh, proposition that the United States uh, is uh, in secular decline and that China uh, has the winds in its sails in, in his historical terms. Uh, but he's not a Mao. Uh, he's, uh, in that sense, a very different kind of, uh, of, of Chinese leader and more cautious, I think. Therefore, I think the proposition of a, uh, you know, a full-scale move on Taiwan, I think, is, is, is probably uh, very low in the short term, a, a very different proposition over the next couple of years, I might add. But I think that um, he will probably be tempted to make some kind of move to test the United States will, uh, but it may not be the the black and white move that, that we that we fear the most. If the, any country in the region is likely to test the United States in the short term, it, it might be North Korea, which has a proxy value for the, for China in any case. So. Um, uh, some of that is outside of the control of uh, of the great powers uh, and um, very difficult to to predict. Taiwan, I think, is going to be uh, the, the biggest and most obvious challenge because uh, that's the one which uh, Xi Jinping has uh, rhetorically uh, nailed his colours to the mast on with uh, reunification of, uh, of, of China. Uh, and uh, it's the one in which uh, the United States has the least wiggle room. Its credibility is on the line. Uh, and um, uh, I think that's that's the obvious uh, flashpoint. On the other hand, I think there are many ways for China to exert pressure on Taiwan short of uh, a full-scale and amphibious assault, which would be extremely risky uh, with all of the political disarray in the United States. The United States military still remains a force to be reckoned with uh, in the region. And it's proved that, I think, with its sustained uh, presence, despite some early difficulties uh, with the US Navy uh, during the pandemic, it, it has since rallied uh, and uh, maintained a strong uh, deterrent posture. And I think that uh, Xi Jinping will be uh, mindful of that. Uh, but there are other ways to skin the cat. And I think that um, there could be uh, indirect uh, moves on 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 um, on Taiwan in the South China Sea through some of its outlying uh, territory there or uh, uh, a blockade perhaps at the upper end of the scale. But um, it is certain to come on uh, Biden's agenda sooner than he would like. 
And I think the idea that the United States has a an interregnum in which it can rebuild its economy and then uh, leisurely resume uh, uh, great power competition from a position of strength is a nice idea. But in practice, it's very unlikely be, to be sustained uh, because one's advers- adversaries have a vote, um, even if they're not democracies. Uh, and China is going to be, uh, I think, uh, chipping away at the margins of U.S. credibility, uh, especially in this short-term period before uh, we, we do get a, a transition. And I think that's that was always going to be the case. That's the most uh, predictable challenge that, uh, that that one can have. Uh, I think the, the the bigger challenge for the United States is to to realize that it is no longer a symmetrical competitor of China uh, in the heart of the region. Uh, that requires a mental adjustment, not just on the part of uh, Biden and his administration, but the American people, uh, that they are no longer a, a global hegemon that's able to compete across regions uh, in the way that they were uh, uh, in the post-war period. It's going to require uh, an almighty concentration of resources, uh, but it's also going to require a shift of resources uh, from from other parts of the world. Well, let's to watch for the next four years. Ewan, thank you for joining us. My great pleasure. The new Biden administration could represent a sea change in U.S. foreign policy towards the Middle East. But as AAAS senior advisor John Rain explains, the politics of the region will still require engagement from President-elect Biden, but perhaps of a different nature and focus than that of his predecessor. Hello, John, and welcome back to another episode of Sound Strategic. Hi, man. Nice to be back. So the Middle East has been one of the regions where the Trump administration has been most engaged with over the last four years. And Trump has developed personal relationships with several regional leaders, including Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia and Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel. How do you think these leaders will now view a Biden presidency? Well, uh, first of all, that they are faced with both a very different proposition. Biden and his administration are going to pursue, they've already signaled this, very different kinds of policies. But they're also presented with someone they know, because Biden has been actively involved in several previous incarnations in the Middle East. They know him and he knows them. Where I think we we will see the big change, though, is that uh, the nature of the relationship between the US president and Middle East leaders is going to change. And I think it will move onto a more regular basis. So a lot of the language that that President-elect Biden has used has indicated that he's not going to be in the business of doing favours for favours. He's not going to have sort of sweetheart relationships with guys he just happens to get along with. He's going to have uh, principles, policy objectives from which policy is derived. So I guess the way um, they will be looking at it is that Here's somebody we know. Uh, This is not going to be straightforward, but he's somebody that we can do business with. At at one end of the spectrum, however, of of Middle East leaders, I think a lot will be nervous about the the moral language that President-elect Biden has used, and they will be nervous about how that translates into both the way he deals with them personally and the way... He designs his policies. 
And and what does that spectrum look like? Do you think there are any leaders in the Middle East that are looking particularly favorably at uh, the Biden administration and what that might mean for them? Uh, he has a long-standing relationship with Benjamin Netanyahu, and uh, Netanyahu was quick to to congratulate him. Um, I, I think, as far as Netanyahu and the and the Israelis are concerned, Biden he's a long-standing supporter. He has characterized himself as such over the decades. And he's someone I think they would feel comfortable doing business with. But the same caveat supplies I mentioned earlier, you know, there'll be elements in his uh, in his policy, which could be tricky. However, there'll be a lot to reassure. I, he hasn't shown himself as yet determined to reverse some of the more spectacular elements of Trump's policy, particularly the move of the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So I think at, at that end of the spectrum, you've got people who, for whom Biden, not going to be straightforward, but they know him, they've got pre-existing relationships. I think trickier for leaders like um, Mohammed bin Salman, the effective leader of Saudi Arabia, uh, who has been uh, almost a personal target for some of President Biden's comments, highly critical comments. And I think he has used a kind of diplomatic code when he has talked about reassessing the relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, what he's looking at here is it's the style in which Saudi has been operating and the style in which MBS has led his country, um, as well as some of the substantive actions. But but overall there, you can see that there, there is going to be uh, a tension and there's going to have to be a recalibration on on both sides. I mean, there, of course, you know, there are a lot of leaders in between. I'd single out, you know, Mohammed bin Zayed, effective leader of the UAE, who moved very quickly to congratulate Biden um, and who has, I think, positioned himself quite well to establish a strong working relationship. Obviously, there's quite a bit of stake there. The Americans have just agreed the, the sale of the uh, the outgoing administration just agreed the sale of the F-35s to the UAE. So maybe there's there's something on the table which um, the Emiratis don't want to see go off the table. But I think more broadly than that, that you know the UAE is looking to un, under MBZ to, to to continue, if you like, the institutional elements in the relationship with with the Americans. So they're they're kind of in the middle. So it's a spectrum. But for everybody, well, you know, in the long term. The Biden administration is probably a good thing for the Middle East. Um, it's not an easy thing for them. So what type of major changes in the U.S. approach to the Middle East under Biden can we expect? You already talked about um, this moral language that Biden has talked about uh, in his speeches and his comments about the region, but also, I think, just more globally in, in the U.S.'s foreign policy. What other major changes can we expect? OK, well, I think the, the, the Middle East is going to be a test bed for a number of features of the Biden administration's policy. And first one of those is multilateralism. So, you know, how many of the issues in the Middle East, Libya, Syria, even possibly the war in Yemen, how many of these is the administration going to try to solve through active engagement with multilateralism to revive multilateral efforts to support them? Uh, or how much is it going to leave to uh, local powers, uh, or indeed, in some cases, to just leaving space for other foreign powers to intervene. So I guess that's the first thing, you know, it's, it's, it's that shift in multilateralism, the, the, the regime is, get, the, the administration will be under real pressure to show that it means that, and it's going to have to do that, first of all, I think, in, in the Middle East. Uh, the second one 
is, is, is sort of moral tolerances. So if, if it is going to have new moral tolerances, then the Middle East is where these, these come to the surface most quickly. I don't think the administration will have the luxury of dealing, as it were, with the intray and then getting around to the big issues, the kind of shaping of the new global later. It's all going to arrive at the same time in the Middle East. Um, and then I think the kind of third area where, you know, we may see big changes where the administration will be tested is, you know, what style of U.S. leadership have we got here? And the U.S. have been the effective security guarantor for their partners in the region, particularly for the whole of the of the of the Gulf. So what does that translate into presuming they want to continue that role? Will we see the same level of defense sales, uh, of deployments to the region, the same level of diplomatic support and the same levels of exchange of technology and capabilities? And I think on a lot of those, um, you, you, there will be similarities. But the ones I would I would signal out to watch, I think defence sales is going to be an area that is reassessed. I think deployments, we will see a continued uh, reduction in the permanent presence of US military in the region and, and a shift towards smarter, more remote, remote ways of projecting force and supporting partners. But probably of all the of all the issues in the region where we are likely to see most movement, I guess it is on Iran. With regards to Iran, the US has been very critical of its security concerns in the region. Will Biden, do you think, completely do away with Trump's maximum pressure campaign when it comes to Iran? And do you see any prospect perhaps of a renewal of the Iran nuclear deal or the US rejoining JCPOA? Well, of course, uh, Biden has um, has never liked maximum pressure. He described it as a, as a dangerous failure. Uh, but when you look at the elements of maximum pressure, financial sanctions, um, a, a, a deterrent component to deployments, to diplomacy and rhetoric, um, both of those elements, I think, in some way are going to survive. Uh, and the reason for that is that Levels of uh, hostility towards Iran within uh, U.S. administration, w- whatever its political complexion, are are historically high. So I think the idea, if you're going to indulge the Iranians in the U.S., it's always that's a large political gamble, and it's it's a kind of difficult one to pull up. They'll pull off. There will be a lot of institutional opposition to that. Uh, the sanctions. Don't forget, a lot of those sanctions relate to Iran's active involvement in terrorism, which has resulted in an almost record number of individuals and entities being put on put on the US sanctions list. So I think it's very hard to, to remove those. I think where we'll see the difference, though, is that uh, Biden will be, uh, will be very keen to revive the deal with Iran because it's such an kind of iconic piece of multilateralism, because it was while it ran effective, and because when the US walked on it, it had such a such a resonance, such an adverse resonance for the US in, internationally as you know, trusted partner in, in treaties. So I think for those reasons, he is going to look for a way to get back in, but I, he, he, he will be conscious that you know, he mustn't be seen to be indulging Iran or, as it were, paying a, 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 a re-entry price into Japan, you know, he's going to want something up front first. But I do think that ultimately um, we we will see him back in some sort of 
treaty-based containment of Iran. We saw a lot of movement on Israel during the Trump administration. There was a uh, establishment of the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, but we've also seen the U.S. broker uh, uh, normalize ties between Israel and the UAE, Bahrain, and, and a few other countries. What do you think the Israeli-U.S. relationship is going to look going forward under a Biden administration? There is a strong relationship, which personal relationship between the two leaders at the moment, which which will set the tone for that relationship. So I don't, you know, neither side is, is is wanting a confrontational relationship. The the big difference is going to be the P word, and you know, discussion of Palestine and Palestinians was noticeably absent, um, or, or or just relegated to footnotes in the Kushner plan and everything else that Trump tried to achieve in the Middle East. I think we're going to find that the Palestinians are back as a specific agenda item. And that is, uh, that's something, of course, that the Palestinians have been calling for. They are very, very cautious in their optimism about this. Um, They don't want to get their hopes up. They know how they know how let down they have been by, by previous administrations. But just looking at the way in which um, Biden and, and his administration want to approach international disputes, which is very much to get the inclusive and the enduring solution to them, however hard it's going to be, I think he's still going to try to apply that to the Palestinian problem. And I think with reference to Trump's achievements in the Middle East, so the Abraham Accord and then the deals with uh, with Bahrain and, and Sudan, you know, these are these are good things to have. And uh, that's something on which Biden can work. I think that it was probably a consideration for all those parties that they wanted to conclude those deals, all the Arab partners, uh, with a view to uh, ensuring they have the best start with with Joe Biden as well. So I think that might be something on which people can build. The thing that was missing conspicuously was that the, the normalization with Israel did not bring any any material benefit and many have argued disbenefits to the Palestinians. And I think that's something that, that Joe Biden is going to want to change. Now, lastly, there are still several ongoing conflicts throughout the Middle East in Yemen, Syria and Libya. Is there potential for the new administration to have a positive impact in resolving these conflicts? There is there is potential. The question is, what's the appetite and the capacity in the administration? And sadly, the, the number of conflicts in the Middle East exceeds the capacity of almost any external actor to, to, to become invested in all of them with a view to... To, to sticking the course to solve them. So I think what will happen is that there'll be a certain amount of triage in the Biden camp. Iran, you, you, you've got to do um, Saudi-Yemen, you've got to do because that's part of the relationship with Saudi Arabia. Then I think you get on to Syria and Iraq in sort of the next category. Uh, in Iraq, I think that the, the drawdown will, or the consolidation of the US presence, I think that will continue. Uh, and in Syria, we'll, we will probably see a renewed U.S. attempt to increase the multilateral pressure through sanctions and so forth on Bashar al-Assad. And then you get on to conflicts with Libya primarily, where, you know, U.S. involvement hitherto has been strictly limited. And and my hunch is that the Biden administration is going to want to put that in the category of things which are 
best solved through multilateralism and where there's a chance for the US to show its support for multilateralism by kind of backing that process. I think the thing that we won't see in any of these conflicts is, is direct US intervention. There's, there is scepticism, at least in the Biden camp, about the value of direct military intervention, even though Joe Biden was, as we all been remembered, you know, he's a supporter of American intervention. First time around in Iraq, you know, he's very much changed his view on that. He's learned less than a lot of people have learned is that in the long run, that kind of direct intervention is uh, can be counterproductive. But where I guess I, I qualify that finally is that, the, you know, the US's pursuit of remote warfare, primarily through 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 drones against carefully selected targets. I think that will continue. That's something that has proved to be um, very much bipartisan. And, and, and as we know, it was actually under a, a democratic government that the numbers of those strikes went up rather than down. Well, thank you so much for joining us, John. And we look forward to talking to you more on these topics in the coming months ahead. Thanks. My pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you enjoyed part one of our special U.S. election episode. Join us again soon for part two, where we will be discussing the new Biden administration policy priorities in Russia and Latin America. So don't forget to follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And for all the latest analysis of international conflict, security, and defense issues, remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or visit the WWS website. Thank you and see you next time.